It's true. Everything is tied together. How we farm is tied to how we live. And how we farm is tied to how we eat. And how we eat is tied to what kind of health that we enjoy. I'm Robin Sussingham, and this is The Zest. Citrus, seafood, Spanish flavor, and southern charm, The Zest celebrates cuisine and community in the Sunshine State. future of food. One prominent food writer says we're heading to a time when we start seeing robots in the farm field and in the kitchen. A longtime wheat farmer says our future is in our past in the form of an ancient grain. And also on today's show, it's 4th of July in Florida and our all-American food is not apple pie. It's the Cuban sandwich. Coming up, we'll find out how it's done at the Columbia Restaurant. Bob Quinn is a 71-year-old organic farmer, plant scientist, and entrepreneur who is passionate about the possibilities in some of the grains and the farming methods from years ago before massive industrialization of food production. He's the author of Grain by Grain, A Quest to Revive Ancient Wheat, Rural Jobs, and Healthy Food. His farm is near his hometown of Big Sandy, Montana, and he kindly stopped off in Helena to speak to me. One of his businesses is the ancient grain business, Kamut International. He also started Montana's first wind farm. Hey, Bob, how are you? Good. Can you just tell me a little bit about Kamut wheat? Well, Kamut is actually a trademark, so it's not the name of the wheat. Um, it is a trademark that um, our family registered about 30 years ago to market an ancient grain, which is a Coruscant wheat, which is a very near relative of Durham. And this wheat has never been hybridized or changed in any way in the last uh, thousands of years. And um, we have been told by people who are still growing it in Palestine and in um, in, in Mesopotamia that it's the same wheat that has been in their um, territory for uh, centuries. And um, it's never been commercialized or hybridized in any way. It has quite a low yield. It's a very tall wheat. It has many of the characteristics of other ancient wheat as being tall and uh, fairly low in uh, productivity. And, and our particular grain is quite susceptible to some diseases that come with moisture, so we, we can't grow it any further east than Bismarck in North Dakota, for example, which is halfway across North Dakota. And so we, it, it has all the characteristics of what is um, found with other ancient wheats. Yeah, so it has characteristics of the kinds of wheat before they've been genetically modified or they've been bred in any way. Right, and then been improved, as they would say. <laughs> we don't think it's been an improvement, but they've certainly been increased. The yields have been increased, and that's the main focus of modern plant breeding and even um, industrial production is increasing efficiency, lowering costs, and trying to get lots of cheap food um, in very great abundance. So how is it different than modern wheat? You mentioned that it's lower productivity, it's susceptible to different kinds of diseases, but what about the actual wheat itself that someone would eat? Right, those are the downsides. And the big upside is really nutrition. And that's where it really shines. And and uh, what we saw was with the ancient wheat diet, there was an increase 
um, in antioxidant capacity, a decrease in um, cholesterol, decrease in blood sugar, decrease in insulin, decrease in insulin resistance, increases in blood um, magnesium, calcium, and zinc. So those are all pretty dramatic uh, improvements that people, uh, after a very short period of time, are starting to notice. So how is the taste different between this wheat and modern wheat? If I cooked with it, what kind of difference in taste or in texture would I notice? Well, the brand is, not, is very soft on it. So that you've got two things going. You've got the texture and the taste. The taste is, you, you ask them out, it's kind of a nutty, a very distinctive, um, pleasant flavor. A lot of, if you're eating whole grains and from red wheats, the red wheats uh, have um, tannins in them that make, uh, give the wheat a little bit of a bitter aftertaste. And so that's normally covered up with sugar. Um, with this grain, you don't need to add sugar to cover up anything because you have a pleasant taste to begin with. You don't have a dark um, a brand. It's a light brand, the same as with durum. Well, can you explain that relationship between the gluten sensitivity and this grain, the Kamut grain? Well, there's a lot of factors that go with gluten sensitivity. It's a better, it's more correct to really look at the whole problem with wheat as wheat sensitivities rather than just gluten because it's not just gluten. Some people are um, sensitive to other parts of the wheat. And, and to really understand the whole problem, you need to understand that it is um, coming from two or three different directions. The first is the grain itself. The grain has been altered to make the American uh, air bread so that it will hold more air. And to do that, um, while it ferments, and to do that, the um, uh, gluten was changed to make it more elastic and better able to hold more air and sometimes harder than to digest. But before it gets to the bakery, the grain is raised on farms that are much different than they were 70 years ago. So now we're farming with chemicals and highly industrialized chemical systems. And that um, is feeding the plant just basic materials without any regard to the soil and the health and, and the viability of the soil. And so the plants coming out of that system aren't near as nutritious and aren't as viable. And some of the um, factors that perhaps help um, mediate um, sensitivities are now lost. We don't really understand everything that's going on, but we know that the, the nutritional value of plants coming off of chemical farms is not equal to that of organic farms. And lastly, um, how the, the bread is made itself. The bakers are now using fast-rising yeast, which allow only time for the, the yeast to ferment the sugar that's added to the dough of the bread without ever getting a chance to uh, ferment and break down um, gluten or starch to pre-digest um, the particles of wheat in that dough. If you compare that to um, long fermentation, so they just ferment long enough to rise the bread, then in the oven it goes without any pre-digestion of, of the wheat c components. And if you compare that to long fermentations of sourdough, for example, uh, a 48-hour sourdough fermentation will destroy 97% of all the gluten in that dough. And it it's completely pre-digesting the, the um, wheat before, people, before it goes into the bread and then before people eat it, making the digestion process much, much easier if you're using long fermentations and sourdoughs. So all those three different factors play a role in um, the problems with wheat sensitivities. So it's so interesting. So it's not just a choice between 
eating bread, eating wheat, or not eating wheat at all. There's so many other things that go into it. Right. And if you have trouble, I would tell people who have trouble eating wheat, if they would do three things, they would probably improve the possibility of eating and enjoying bread probably 90%. And that is to buy organic, to eat ancient or heritage grains that have never been changed, say, in the last 50 or 60 years, and to buy sourdough, longer fermentations, a bread that's been longer in the fermentation process, and whole wheat. You take a very holistic view of farming and community, and I really love your description of your hometown, Big Sandy, when you were growing up. Life in a small, close-knit rural community, it was, vi- it was a vibrant community. It was. It was. It was was, uh, close-knit. Everybody stuck stuck together. They didn't all agree with one another, but they helped each other out when trouble arose or when when it was necessary. And that's what makes it fun and important, I think. But you you see this whole change in wheat and modernizing farming and modernizing how the wheat is grown, tied to everything, tied to the soil, tied to the community and and the death of some of these small towns. Yes, it's true. Everything is tied together. How we farm is tied to how we live, and how we farm is tied to how we eat, and how we eat is tied to how, uh, what kind of health that we enjoy. So all these things are really, are really knit together, and it's just been the industrialization of it that's sort of broken it into all these individual packages and think that we can uh, have all these elements standing alone and we can um, provide in an artificial chemical way what we think that, that might be necessary rather than understanding what we have lost by such uh, a reductionist idea. I'd like to say one more thing when people talk about conventional agriculture comparing it to organic agriculture. And I, my response to that, that conventional agriculture is what we've been doing the last 10,000 years. And what we've been doing in the last 70 or 80 is, an, is a chemical experiment. It's no way conventional. And organic really is more like conventional, particularly if it's regenerative organic, which means it's renewable and sustainable and we're building the soils all the time. And I think that really has the promise to feed the world. And the experiment we're doing right now with uh, chemical agriculture is starting to come to an end. Uh, We have now um, weeds that are resistant to chemicals. We have chemicals that are um, polluting our waters. We have Roundup glyphosate in the rain that falls on our farm and huge pollutions in the Gulf of Mexico. And I think that people are starting to be more concerned about uh, traces of these chemicals in their food. And the whole focus on industrial agriculture and cheap food, I'm thinking, is starting to and hopefully will be replaced by concern for healthy and nutritious food that gives us health, vitality, and, and longevity. Well, Bob Quinn, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, it's my pleasure and my honor. Thank you, Robin, very much. That was Bob Quinn, organic farmer and the author of Grain by Grain, A Quest to Revive Ancient Wheat, Rural Jobs, and Healthy Food. Next, we take a look into our crystal ball with the always fascinating food writer, Laura Riley. Laura writes about the business of food for the Washington Post, and she was for many years the restaurant critic at the Tampa Bay Times. I wanted to talk to Laura about what she sees in the future of our food culture. I'm so glad to talk to you, Laura. Thanks, Thanks for being for with us. Me. Wonderful. Thanks. 
I want to talk to you about what you see as the future of food. What are we going to see in in upcoming years? I think food is more than any other part of our retail experience or, you know, kind of our commerce. It's so trust-based. You know, we have no way of drilling down. You know, if you're, you, someone serves you a Dover sole, you know, it's, it's a dark restaurant, it's under a cream sauce. You have no way of assessing whether that's Dover sole, you know. It could a lot be, of times it's tilapia from Sam's thing. Club, you know. Right. I think that that's something that we've found again and again. I think the, the, the AP did a big series on, you know, seafood fraudulence this past year. Um, and I think it is something that we all need to, there, we need to encourage greater transparency in the system just so that we're kind of shining a light where, where shysters do a lot of, you know, a lot but how of, did we do that? Is, is there any technology in the forefront that's going to tell us? Sure. I, mean, I don't know if I'm going to want to be lab testing my fish when I go out to well, dinner. Well, no, I mean, not lab testing, but I think that there is technology now. And some people are implementing this or it's kind of being beta tested here and there where there would be a table talker, you know, a table tent on your restaurant table that says tonight's fish is snapper and grouper. And you could swipe with your phone and find out precisely who caught that fish and when and kind of what its supply chain has been since then. And the unfortunate part of all of this is that it reveals some some unsavory truths about, you know, for instance, you know, the eggs that you're eating from the grocery store may be 40 days old or that the the fresh fish that you're eating tonight in this restaurant was caught more than two weeks ago and put on ice. And, you know, it's a long line. It's a long line fish. So it it may have been out there that that boat may have been out there for a couple of weeks before it came in with the fresh fish. So, you know, the all of this kind of stuff comes with uh, a downside in terms of, you know, sometimes knowledge is is unpleasant. More robots working in the restaurant industry. Oh, my gosh. I, I think I predict that in the next four years, if you go to a Dunkin' Donuts, there'll be no humans working there. Really? So oh. I, I think that we're really close because, I mean, really, on the farm, I talk to farmers all the time who their biggest concern is labor pool, that they don't, you know, if, you're, if we're going to really crack down on immigration and, and migrant labor, you know, agricultural workers, um, that is the big, you know, for, for a crop that, that uh, comes to, you know, to fruit for a narrow window, a couple weeks out of the year, you can't have instability about who's going to pick that crop. I mean, that's your bottom line. So, you know, there, there are robots being tested right now in the field for something like strawberries. So, and the fascinating thing is those robots, they'll go through and, and, and strawberries are a crop where not everything becomes ripe at the same time. So it's, you may have to go through a field four and five times to pick all the fruit. Well, a robot can go through and pick the ripe fruit and with camera phone technology and GPS and whatever, it can identify what fruit is going to be ripe the next time, you know, the day after tomorrow. And it can remember precisely where that fruit was. So it's not flying blind. I mean, it is just logging, okay, the day after tomorrow, I'm going to this plant at this exact, you know, within a half inch of, you know, so those kinds of technologies. And backbreaking labor. But that's also entry-level labor. So these are going to bring all kinds of consequences. Sure. Well, and some of the some of the issue that we have is it's not it's not a political thing. Some of the issues that we have in terms of our immigrant labor laborers agriculturally, we've always gotten people from Mexico, and the birth, um, you know, when we started having field laborers from Mexico. Their birth rate was 6.2 and ours was 2.2. And now ours is essentially 2.2 and theirs is 2.2. And also Mexico has emerged as a huge agricultural country in its own right. So people who do migrant farm work now have plenty of places that they can do that, you know, domestically in Mexico. And if they're not having as many kids, there are, 
you know, the future generations of farm laborers are are in question. And mm. we've had so there are there are lots of reasons why farmers are experimenting with with robots one way or another. And I think restaurateurs too. I think that if you're talking about chain restaurants where things could be mechanized. Um, or you know, iPad technology that obviates the need for for servers or or you know counter people. Um, you know, people are the fallible ones, right? You know, they're the ones who who take vacations and get sick and don't show up and and. You right, know, but we need the job. Yeah, well, and and that is a big question. I think that I anticipate that part of my job moving forward will be will be to um, look at disruptive technologies like that and who loses out. You know, I mean, I think that it's so easy to embrace things. You're talking about Uber. I mean, it's so easy to embrace the rise of Uber and Lyft, but we need to not uh, shy away from the tragedy that that meant for traditional cabbies and medallion holders, you know, people who their whole extended family pulled together to, you know, buy a New York City cab medallion, and now it's worth nothing. So there Mm -hmm. are always winners and losers in any of these kinds of disruptive technology moments. And I think ag and the restaurant industry are kind of poised for some major changes. So there's something called facial recognition software at kiosk where you order your food. What is that about? Well, I think BurgerFi, a whole bunch of restaurants, kind of burger chains have embraced this idea. So first of all, there's, you know, now you can have an app on your phone. So your regular order at any, at a fast food restaurant, at Carabas or whatever, you know, that your, your, your order, your ordering history is, has been captured. Um, which I wonder who that information is being sold to. Um, and certainly with facial recognition, I don't think I'm super enthusiastic, even if it saves you a couple minutes. If you go up to a kiosk at, let's just say BurgerFi, something like that, and it maps your face and says, oh, it's Laura Riley. Last time you were here, you ordered a double-double with the bacon. Yeah, that may save me a little bit of time, but do I really want my... Is this happening? It's happening. Yeah, and I think this is something that that you have to wonder about who's using that information and for what purpose. Wait you know, a minute, in terms this of was a Tom your... Cruise movie, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, not that long that? ago. That seems super far fetched, but I mean, we're seeing we're it be already in, in in bathtubs of ice to keep the little spiders from finding us. Yeah, well, I, I, I think it's not that it's not that That's far off. Well, I mean, we're seeing Aren't it. People you know, protesting people, it. The, the the people who are doing the the you know DNA testing. You know, we just found out that all that information is being sold. Uh, to big database, you know, companies that are tracking our consumer habits and are, you know, I, I, I have I have concerns about that or that you know, now it's possible to buy a huge TV for $500 and that's because they're tracking your viewing habits and your spending habits and all of that kind of stuff and selling that information. That's why it's uh, it's cheap. Laura, you're making me really depressed, and you, <laughs> I'm always and, Little Miss and Sunshine. We be just talking about food and like great food. No, these are these are really important topics, and um, we look forward to following your reporting at the Washington Post. Thanks so That's much, Laura, Laura. Riley, former restaurant critic for the Tampa Bay Times, and she now writes about the business of food for the Washington Post. Well, how can a simple sandwich ignite such controversy, you may well ask? When it's the Cuban sandwich and we're in Florida, there's a bitter battle for the title of who had it first and who makes it best. Producer Delia Colon spoke to Andrea Gonsmart-Williams of the Columbia Restaurant doesn't think there's any controversy at all. For Florida's entry into the most all-American 4th of July food, I give you 
The Cuban Sandwich. I'm Andrea Gonsmart-Williams. I'm fifth generation of the Columbia Restaurant Group, which means my great-great-grandfather founded the Columbia in 1905. And it's still here in Ybor City in Tampa. That's amazing. Still here and still family-owned. That is so cool. So what are some of the dishes that the Columbia is known for? We are probably best known for our Cuban sandwich, which is kind of funny being a fine dining establishment. It's it's a little controversial. Can you tell us uh, maybe the story behind it? You know, people say it's controversial. In my mind, there's nothing controversial about it. It started here in Tampa. Um, and, you know, and why I truly feel it began in Tampa is because it's a combination of everyone that immigrated to Ybor City in the turn of the century. You have your Cuban bread, which represents the Cubans, and you've got your ham, which represents the Spaniards. Then you go to your pork, which represents your Cubans again. Then you have salami, which is the Italians, and the pickles and the mustards, which represent the Germans. And so it, tru- it truly is owned oh, the Swiss cheese, which I always joke is the melting of all of these different cultures coming together. And so in one sandwich, you have a glimpse as to what Ybor City looked like at the turn of the century. A little melting pot. Exactly. So, I mean, I guess what makes it so controversial is Miami wants to stake it for theirs. There's two different differences between the Tampa Cuban and the Miami Cuban. Number one, our bread is far better. We use traditional Cuban bread. Cuban bread doesn't taste as good as it does here in Ybor City. And people joke it's because of the water. There's something in the water that makes the bread taste so great. Something that makes it also different is that Miami doesn't use the salami, which the salami gives it that extra little kick to it. Um, And once again, that's evidence that the Cuban sandwich was founded here in Ybor City. Okay, end of, end of story, full stop. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Tell me about the bread. I mean, is this the same bread that's set on the table when you come to the Columbia restaurant? Because I'm like, just give me a loaf of bread and a doggy bag because I'm going to fill up on that bread. Yes, it is the same Cuban bread that our, all of our diners get when they come to the Columbia restaurant. We have been buying our bread from La Segunda Central Bakery, which is also here in Ybor City, for over a century now. So they are almost as old as we are, and it is the only Cuban bread we have ever used, and it'll hopefully be the only Cuban bread we will ever use. I hope so. What's your What's your go-to here? I'm a vegetarian, so I love just simple black beans and rice, some platanos, and maybe a mojito on the side. Something else you should try with your black beans. My sister's also a vegetarian intermittently. You should put some diced tomatoes and onions with a little bit of sherry vinegar on top of your black beans. You would never think it, but it's delicious. Ooh, that's good. I'm going to get that next time. But my go-to, you know, people say you have to be sick of the 1905 salad. I eat it probably five days a week. I eat the 1905 with turkey. It's my favorite. Um, but then it depends on what other night, whatever day it is. Sometimes I feel like having a piece of fish. We've got a great meat selection. And when I really want to indulge, I'll get myself a paella. Mm. And it looks like we've got some stuff set up here to make the Cuban sandwich. The famous Cuban sandwich. <laughs> so um, what we do here, we actually roast our own pork. We roast our own ham, which is sugar glazed. We use Genoa salami, which has the peppercorns in it, which is my father feels is really important. Swiss cheese, yellow mustard, no mayo around here or lettuce and tomato, and of course the pickle. So when you start building your sandwich, you start with about a nine inch piece of Cuban bread and you start laying it from the bottom up. And it's important that you layer in a particular order so that way it hits your palate just right. 
my father can literally bite into a Cuban sandwich and say, it is not late. It's not layered right. It's unacceptable. Someone's fired. (laughs) It's not. He'll go to the kitchen and he'll open it up. So you start with your ham. And something I never realized while growing up is that you need to layer the ham, all the meat actually, in a very even layer. So that way each bite tastes exactly the same. So we've got our ham. Then we're gonna go to our roast pork and put that on as an even layer once again. And how would you describe the thickness or thinness of how the meat is sliced? You know, it's not thin, it's not thick. It's kind of just right. Maybe an eighth of an inch thick. That Goldilocks quality. (laughs) Exactly. And then we're gonna do our Genoa salami. That's got the peppercorns in it. And there is that cheese, the Swiss cheese that we said is like the melting pot of it all. We're going to top the top piece of the bread with mustard. You don't do both sides because otherwise your mustard is going to become overwhelming. I noticed you didn't do the bottom and I was a little skeptical, but I'm like, hey, this is your journey. I'm just going on it with you. (laughs) I've done this a couple times. Trust me. Okay, so she's got the mustard evenly layered, and she's got some sliced pickles. Two Are these pickles. I don't know. Two what's the pickles. Find the two pickles, because you know you question. Well, each bite's supposed to taste exactly the same. It's a little stingy with the pickles. Just two. two it's, pickles. It's a surprise. I guess it's there like, wasn't a lot of Germans in Ybor City. <laughs> Will this bite have a pickle? We don't know. That's at least a little mystery. <laughs> and that is how you build the Cuban sandwich. At which point, then we would brush it with butter and put it on the press and you press it until it's crispy. But of course, some people like it eating it cold. Okay, so you're brushing it with butter? Butter. Um, For years, we actually didn't do this step. And then after my father did some research and he wanted to make us have the best Cuban sandwich in Florida, he realized this is something that they used to always do. Hmm. Okay, and, oh, go on. Go ahead. And so we started doing that in the restaurant. All right, she's putting it in the press. For those who don't know, who is your father? Who's your daddy? My father is Richard Gonsmart. He is fourth generation of the Columbia Restaurant president and CEO. And one of the nicest guys I've ever met. He is the, he's my dad, but I'm going to say he is one of the most nicest and generous men that I know. All right, so we're going to leave this pressed. Get it nice and toasty and happy. Okay. So now, when you cut your Cuban sandwich, you cut it on a diagonal. Some people say, well, why do you cut it on the diagonal? It's so that first bite's so easy. You just point it right into your mouth. You want to take a bite and I'll take a bite? I'm a vegetarian, so I'm going to leave this up to you. You don't know what it looks like. I know. You might might convert me. I'll take one for the team and I'll take a bite. Delicious. (laughs) It's delicious. All right, Andrea Gonsmart-Williams, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. That was The Zest producer Delia Cologne speaking to Andrea Gonsmart-Williams. As Delia said, we've got a recipe for the Columbia's Cuban sandwich and the recipes for glazed ham and roasted Cuban pork on our website, thezestpodcast.com. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like what you hear, rate us on iTunes and please subscribe. We've also got a very nice newsletter with cooking ideas and recipes that you can subscribe to through our website, thezestpodcast.com. 
I'm Robin Sussingham. Dalia Cologne and I produce The Zest with help from Megan Trimble, Mark Hayes, and Craig George. The Zest is a production of WUSF Public Media.